I'm just going to start with prayer real quick, if you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. You're so loving. You're so kind. You're so long-suffering. I just pray that anything that I do and say here will bring glory and honor to your name. I invite your presence to be here with us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. At our F5 events, we do a lot of icebreakers because we want to mix people up and get them to know each other. And so one of the things I do is a common icebreaker is I ask people, what is the most blissful thing you have ever experienced in your life? The definition of the word bliss is perfect happiness. And you can just start thinking of what's the most blissful thing you've ever experienced in your life? One person shared something about just kayaking on the lake and it was just so beautiful. One of the most blissful experiences I ever had was we had just summited Mount Rainier. We climbed through the night. And when you're on that mountain, you get tired of that backpacking food, tired of power bars. And as we're coming down at that high altitude, you got to eat, but you have no appetite. And back at camp, there was some food with some fruit in it. And I was just hoping that my friends who stayed behind or got back early did not eat that food up, or that they would have left it. And when I came back, it tasted so good. It was so blissful. You know, when I ask these questions, the answers are oftentimes, most of the answers are things that are fairly, very simple. No one ever says, it's when I bought my first car or I bought my first house. It's always something, some simple experience, and it usually costs nothing or the cost is very negligible, just like that, just that tasty meal I had right there at base camp. Just this week, one of the most blissful moments of yesterday was just God hearing answer my prayer that my daughter is enjoying her experience at Youth Rush because that weighed heavily on me all week. I didn't want her to resent her dad for encouraging her to go do this. You know, knocking on doors and getting rejected is a character-building experience, but it's, you know, you hear stories of some people quitting and leaving, and that's just, I didn't, want to, I didn't want my daughter to experience that, and so that was so, I was just happy, so happy yesterday. The pen of inspiration says, there is no greater bliss, perfect happiness, there's no greater bliss on this side of heaven than in what? That's right. Then in winning souls to Christ. I'll tell you a quick story about a friend of mine. Uh, Tuesday nights, we have a running group. It stopped because of COVID, but I showed up, and there was a new guy there. And a lot of times, I like to gravitate towards new guys. You know, new people, they don't know everyone. It seems like everyone knows each other. And his name's Charlie Rocket. What a great name for a runner. And we started running, and this guy was running fast. He's a fast runner. And one thing that all runners want to do is they want to be able to run faster. You'll never meet a runner that goes, you know what? I think I run too fast. I can run too hard. No, every, fa- every runner wants to run faster, and they want to be able to run longer. And so we ran together the entire time. And I said, Charlie, I want you to help me to get to be a faster runner. And he loved it. He goes, I'll help you. And so we met again, and we went swimming together, and he's teaching me different tips and stuff. Anyways, I asked him, I said, do you want to go hiking with me? Because he was living in Olympia alone. His wife is in Japan by herself. You know, she's Japanese. He's not. And so he goes, yeah, I'll go hiking with you. He doesn't really have any friends. And so, and then as I was thinking about it, my church is up north. He lives down here. For me to go to church and go all the way to Olympia and go back, it's going to be really out of the way. And I normally wouldn't invite someone I just became friends with to church. Normally, I will invite them to go hiking. But I said, you know what? It would be easier if I just picked you up in the morning and you went to church with me. And to my surprise, he goes, oh, I'll go to church with you. So he goes to church with me. And after we, we went hiking, we had a great time. Not too long after, I cannot remember if it was just a few weeks or a month or so or a couple months right afterwards, he sends me an email, and this is what the email says. A dear and wonderful friend of mine who's not even in the church recommended that I confess to you the depression that I can't work through. Training and helping people being the encouraging coach is probably the only thing that is keeping me sane. 
while I know I can help you succeed, I'm fighting a mental illness that admitting would even shame my wife. I can't help you if I'm not a model for your own success. I want to support you so much. I've been bragging to my friends how I met this individual whose life I can help change. I think I need to be in your church. Maybe I shouldn't be telling you this. The suicide helpline guy was a disaster. Can I confide in you without being judged? I feel your church and you might be the only ones that I can confide in. But I don't know where to turn except the church. Your congregation even for one day helped keep me alive. I'm sorry to unload this on you because you wanted a running buddy and have inherited a suicide. He's apologizing and I'm praising God that my friend recognizes his need for Jesus in his life and I'm like, Lord, you put me in, his, in that place right there. Can you attest to the veracity of this quote that there is no greater bliss on this side of heaven than in winning souls to Christ? I have found nothing more satisfying. Running is gratifying. Winning souls is satisfying. Souls is the currency of heaven. It's what heaven values most. God valued us so much he risked the failure of heaven. We're told, for us took the risk of failure and eternal loss. One day when we're in heaven, if we should have any regrets, and it's debatable if we'll have regret in heaven, because the definition of regret is feeling of sorrow. And we're told in heaven we will not have sorrow. But should there be any regrets in heaven, I think the universal regret will be that we did not do more to bring others with us to heaven. Not only is this the most blissful work, we are told that this is the greatest work to which human beings can aspire is the work of winning men from sin to holiness. Here's the irony of life. The irony of life is the more important something is, the less instruction and education we receive about it. When I speak to youth, I tell them the most important things in your life is your relationship with God, that's a given, who you marry, you spend the rest of your life, that will affect your usefulness for your number one relationship with God, and number three, what your career is. We get almost no instruction in high school and in college about how to find that spouse. You may go to a seminar, you may go to a camp meeting, and they may speak about it. Many people like me, you go to college your first year and you're floundering around trying to decide what to do for a career. In high school, we learn physics, biology, chemistry, pre-calc. We learn all these classes, most of which, some of it's useful, some of it's totally not useful. You'll never use it again in your life. And yet, what about what you're going to do spending the rest of your life? And it's hardly talked about. And then we come out and they never teach us about money management, so everyone is leaning on people like Dave Ramsey to learn how to manage your finances. And so here's a topic, it's considered the the most important work it's, will bring you the greatest bliss and unless you go to a Bible college or you're blessed to be able to go to a summer canvassing program or go to AFCO or um, a Bible training school or a conference like GYC or iShare. How much are we taught from our local church on how to win souls? And so what happens is we're usually learning from our own mistakes. I can't tell you how many mistakes I've made. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's not a great thing either. I used to fire hose. You know what fire hosing is? You know, when you turn on fire hose, you got to turn that thing on slowly. You start blasting people, you know what it does? It just pushes them away. You know who does this a lot? New converts. They just went through a four-week prophecy seminar. They're on fire. They know who the mark of the beast is, who the antichrist is, and they want to go and tell all their family members. And you know what they do? They start burning bridges with their family members, and then they have to spend the rest of their life trying to reconnect with their family. We see it all the time. Maybe we should have a class for new converts. And there's something about when we know truth and someone knows error, it's almost intuitive and instinctive that we just want to share. We want to set them straight. And in doing so, we make mistakes. Now, um, I had a friend 
met her through F5. She's a Jewish gal. Sabbath morning, I read something from Sabbath school lesson. It was just a Bible verse about Paul and the Jews. It was inspiring. So I shared it on my Facebook wall, and she commented how anti-Semitic I was or how anti-Semitic the comment. I was like, I've never been called anti-Semitic. I deleted it, contacted her, and long story short, she unfriended me on Facebook. So I learned. I, bridged, I burned bridges there. And so over the years, I've learned. But God has been merciful and patient with me, and I've learned to stop doing things that just don't work, and I've become more adept at things that are actually more conducive and helpful to soul winning. Now, this topic of soul winning is inexhaustible. We are told the science of soul winning is the highest of all sciences. So there's only so much I can cover, so I'm only going to cover one subset of evangelism, which is specifically friendship evangelism, which is something that I'm most passionate about. And it's what our ministry's focus is. The internal model of our ministry is fitness for witness. I say internal because we want to keep that internal. And then you have a well-meaning member of our group posted on Facebook right in front of all the other people, fitness for witness. And we're like, uh, no, we don't want everybody, the atheists, all the people knowing that you know, one of our purposes that we want to win them to Jesus. So I had brought one of my friends to one of our events, not Adventist, and we had just finished a big hike, and she wants, she's hungry. She wants to get a burger. And one Adventist person in, in our group was right next to her as she was ordering her meat burger and said, you really should try the veggie burger here. She goes, oh, okay. And he goes, the veggie burger here is really good. She wants her meat burger. She's not Adventist. And I think he said it a third time, or she, or he, I believe it was he, when she finally goes, hey, I'm not Adventist. And as we're flying home, she's telling me this. And I'm thinking, let the poor girl order her meat burger. And then she comes to another event just a few weeks later. And this time, she brings one of her non-Adventist friends with her. And I'm just like, yes, that's what we want. She had such a good time, she's bringing her. And as far as I know, she, this gal's probably atheist. And I don't like that our events start with Friday night vespers. I would rather it started earlier in the day and we started hiking and rock climbing so we can at least build connection first. But normally, because of schedule, it starts with vespers. And here's this girl who's just sitting there, kind of like, she looks like a fish out of water. Just like you and I would be sitting at a Mormon camp meeting, like, what am I doing here, kind of a look, right? And right as soon as Vespers is over, and I'm like, and keep in mind, by Sunday, after we'd gone Sabbath, we'd gone hiking, and Sunday we'd gone rock climbing, this gal, this new gal, just, you could just tell she was just connecting with everybody. But this is Vespers. And right after Vespers, my friend, who likes her hamburgers, um, she goes, you know, when we were on that big hike from the previous trip, she goes, they were talking about how Jesus is coming back through the belt of the Ryan. She goes, where do you guys get that? She goes, that sounds like a crock of, and she just stopped right there. And right there in front of the campfire, I'm like, I just want to um, crawl in a hole and die. And I'm like, who is telling you these stories? So I want us to learn from Jesus himself, the master evangelist, keys to effective soul winning. So we're going to go straight into the Bible in John. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to somebody. Do you know who Jesus is speaking through? Nicodemus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, we know this text, and Jesus is speaking this to Nicodemus. Right in the next book, John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to somebody. Who is he speaking to? The woman at the well. And if you do a compare and contrast with these two stories, they have nothing in common except for one thing. These two people had an encounter with Jesus face-to-face, one-on-one, and that's the only thing they have an encounter with. One wasn't even looking for Jesus, which was a woman, and Nicodemus actually came looking for Jesus. But if you do a compare and contrast, everything is completely antithetical as it gets. One is male, one's female. 
One's married to one woman, one's had five relationships. One is a religious leader, the other is a not religious leader. One is educated, one is uneducated. One is a Pharisee, a Jew. One is a Samaritan. One meets with Jesus in the nighttime. One meets with Jesus in the daytime. And you just keep going through. One meets in the valley. One meets in an elevated place. Completely opposite stories. So what do we draw from this? One is that as Jesus begins his ministry right after John 2 and he turns the water into wine, the first thing Jesus does is he meets with somebody in the highest echelon of society. Nicodemus, wealthy, well-educated, and um, uh, reputable. And then right after that, he goes to someone who's in the lowest social rung of the social ladder, a Samaritan, a social outcast, and he ministers to her. Because we're told Jesus and every soul that he saw, he saw a soul to be saved or one. That's what Jesus sees. There's no one outside the reach and grasp that does not deserve to be saved. And so here we see this. And so from this simple compare and contrast, I want to pull... There's so many spiritual lessons to be pulled. I just want to mention and highlight two just for the purpose of this message. One is the approach. Jesus is very direct with Nicodemus. First thing he says is, you must be born again. He says over, you must be born again. He says, marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Very direct. You know why Jesus is direct with Nicodemus? He says in verse 10, art thou a religious, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? You should know better. So if you see me ordering a meat burger, you can say, Calvin, you really should try the oat burger. It's really, really good. Okay? Now, if you see me ordering a bacon burger, you can say, Calvin, you know better than that. You can't ask God to bless that swine that he cursed. But if I'm not an Adventist, let them order what they want. Okay? That's not the first thing. So, another thing is, with the woman, he takes a totally different approach. What is he trying to do? And we all know he asks her a favor. He's trying to win her trust. And I know you are all familiar with this, but I have to share this. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. If there's one word in this paragraph that's a focal point for me, or to me the crux, what do you think that is? What do you think that word is? Huh? That's right. You guys, I'm impressed. I've shared this message before. People are like, ministered, um, sympathy, you know, just different things. It's the word then. It means at that time. It's timing. He won their confidence, then he bade them, follow me. Way too often, you know what, we haven't even won their confidence, and we're already saying, follow me in my beliefs. Follow me in my diet plan. With Nicodemus, Nicodemus came looking for him. In verse 2, Nicodemus saith unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus already had his confidence. This guy had already been watching Jesus doing these things, administering to the people and sympathizing with them. And so he had already won the confidence. With the woman, she didn't know who Jesus was. Another thing I want to focus on is the timing. The timing is so critical. Also, the timing of their conversion. The woman became converted right away. She goes and tells everybody. That's important. That's why we need new converts. You and I are tapped out of people. There's only so many people we know that we can invite to church, but new convert now brings their family and friends, and we see that after a baptism. We need the new convert. Nicodemus hid the truth in his heart for three years, and then afterwards, Desire of Ages tells us he used his wealth to help support that church. They both came to Jesus, but the timing was totally different. I met a, young, uh, a man who was just a few years older than me, Patrick, at a medical dental um, little thing we were doing at our local church in Olympia. They asked me to just come be a dentist, and I met this guy. 
and I felt like I could connect with him. I said, hey, let's go have lunch together. I took him out to lunch. We started having Bible studies. We did Bible studies off and on for 10 years before he finally got baptized. I wondered, is this guy going to ever get baptized? We'd have Bible studies. He'd drift away, come back, Bible studies. He'd share with me what he's struggling with. And I'm like, oh, he just needs Jesus. He's got all these problems in his life. And 10 years later, leave the timing to the Lord. Amen. So one time I had invited a friend, and she's hanging out with my Adventist friends. And within a few hours, within the first visit, the conversation became about why you should not eat meat and why you should eat meat. It became kind of a banter and a joke. And I know in these situations, it's always with good intentions and well-meaning. And I'm just like, this is not happening to me. <laughs> Anyways, um, 1 gentleman shared the following. If they had talked God at any point in our convos, short conversation, I would have been gone. The Spirit dictated when it was the right time. He knew when I would be receptive. Humans have nasty habit of buggering up things. So, just want to underscore those two things again. One is, what is it? The approach. And number two is the timing. Because sometimes we feel like as soon as we meet them, we got to somehow, i got to put in my plug. You know, i got to ask them, do you want Jesus in your life? And here... Jesus, what he does is he wins their confidence first before he bids them to follow him. Now, those of you who are familiar with CPR, CPR is an acronym for evangelism, for cultivating, planting, and then reaping. And timing is important. You can't just plant seeds in the dead of winter. No one does that. You don't just harvest any time. It depends on the fruit and the plant and the tree. There's a time for all of this. So, I want to tell you about my friend. I was in an airport, and I rarely buy magazines, but I just asked. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll just look at the magazines, and I asked if they had a triathlon magazine there. And the lady said they didn't, and the lady behind me overheard me asking, and she started talking to me. She goes, I heard you asking about triathlons. And so we just started talking, and she's got a backpack on, and it's got triathlon stuff on it. And I could tell she's avid, passionately about triathlons. She goes, do you mind if we sit together on the plane? I'm like, sure. So she asked, and... They had seating available for us to sit next to each other. I've got this gal as a captive audience for three to four hours. Or should I start? Daniel 2? <laughs> or should we just go for broke? Go all out. Let's just go to Revelation 13. <laughs> or I've got enough time to cover all five S's of, the Sab of our church. Sabbath. What are they? Second coming. Sanctuary. Spirit of prophecy. State of the bed. State of the dead. Do you know, do you know what we talked about the entire time? Talked about triathlons the entire time. I discovered that her husband's a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, I discovered very quickly that he just moved over to Washington, and she talked about, oh, we can cycle and do training together. She insisted that I use my heart rate monitor and borrow it, because I was actually headed somewhere to do a triathlon. I took, the tri uh, I took her heart rate monitor. Do you know why I took her heart rate monitor? Because this would make sure we we're connected, because these things are expensive. I discovered, I knew she was not going to be a short-term contact, because if she was going to be short-term contact one time, then all, at the end, I want to hand her a glow track, or I want to hand her something. Lately, I'm more into handing out the bridge version of the Great Controversy. I'm like, if I'm going to give them something, I want to give them the full package. But here, I was like, nope, this is going to be a short-term contact. To make a long story short, she had come out to two of our events, and it was two years before we had our first spiritual conversation. Happened to be in a car, everybody else was sleeping, and she shared with me how she had planned to be a nun, but she had all the horrible things she'd seen in the church and all the pain, and she's totally atheist. And five years later, 
she was one of our volunteers for one of our things that we were doing with our F5 challenge. And she's brought a bunch of her friends to join F5. She's not converted. We're just still planting seeds. And now I looked on her Facebook, she's got 19 Seventh-day Adventist friends. Before that, she may not have any Adventist friends. And so what we're doing, we're just planting seeds, and she's looking forward to coming to our next big event. So in CPR, we have what we call, which stands for cultivating, planting, and reaping. BLS, those of you who are in the medical field know what BLS is, basic life support, same thing as CPR. And I have an acronym for BLS. And it just stands for Basic Level of Success. Do you know what I consider basic level of success now? It's real simple. If they know you're Adventist and they think you're normal. <laughs> the reason why is we're trying to be winsome witnesses. And if they think you're normal, it's easier to go from normal to winsome witnessing than from strange, odd, and unusual. I don't know if everyone recognizes this, that I've had Bible studies for at least three people or more, maybe four, where their family members are telling them they're a cult. Adventism is a cult. If you go to Korea, in general, they think Adventism is a cult. You go to South America, in many countries, in Latin American countries, they think you're a cult. Cult is synonymous with strange, odd, and unusual. It's not normal. Um, you ever have someone tell you, oh, oh, they're Mormon? And usually it goes like this, oh, they're Mormon. They're really nice. Why do they add that caveat? Or this, they find out I'm Adventist. Oh, I had friends that were Adventists. They're so nice. You don't have to tell me they're nice. I know we're nice people. Why are they telling me that? Because there's this preconceived notion out there for those who know who are Adventists. What is, what is the one question that probably every call porter or canvasser doesn't want to be asked when they're at a door? Nelson or Bill, what do you think that question is? What denomination are you? You don't want to be asked that question because we don't want to have any, you know, any, anything that's going to kind of impede this connection. You know, you could say the same thing. Where'd you go to school? Harvard. And automatic, it's respect and admiration. Oh, they're Mormon. Oh, there's, it's usually not very positive or optimistic unless you're, you're a fellow Mormon. You know, from us Adventists to Adventists, like, oh, I'm Adventist. I'm, oh, yeah. We're so happy. But when it's outside, you have to think that there is a subset of people we look at, which are, you've got mainstream Protestant denominations, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist. Oh, they're Baptist. Oh, they're Presbyterian. And then you've got the, the next group, the subset, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And guess what? Surprise, we're right there with them. You do recognize that. And so I think this is important for us to recognize when we are trying to win people via friendship evangelism. Once I was getting out of an Uber just recently, and we had a dialogue, and she was Christian which was interesting because as soon as she pulled up in the front seat, it looked like there was someone sitting there. And I thought, I've never had an Uber pickup with someone already there. Well, it was actually just kind of a hat and a thing to make it look like someone's there. I'm like, well, you know, you see what they're doing, right? They're making it look like there's someone there, probably so they can drive in carpool or whatever. But anyways, I find out she's Christian. So when I'm leaving the car, I go, this is one of my favorite books. And I hand her the bridge version of The Great Controversy. And she was just really jovial kind of personality. And she goes, are you Mormon? You know what she's getting at, right? She wants to know, is this Mormon literature? I go, no, it's not Mormon. And for good measure, I said, it's not Jehovah's Witness either. And then she smiled, and when she pulled around, she opened a window to thank me. A lady commented to a friend of mine, oh, you're an Adventist? You seem normal. 
I did, an I did an informal poll on Facebook, on a Facebook group I created called Rejoicing in Hope. You're welcome to join. It's for Adventists only, to help Adventists understand that we shouldn't be talking about anything and everything on our Facebook walls because people are watching us. And on there, I just asked the question, if you, if you didn't grow up in the church and you became Adventist, before you became Adventist, had you heard of Adventists? The majority had never heard of an Adventist before. That's bad news, but it's also good news. It's actually good news. And the ones who had, it's like, I thought they were strange, odd, and unusual, or I thought they were a cult. Ellen White says, be sure to work in a way that will remove prejudice instead of creating it. Oftentimes, the prejudice is already there. This is the reason why evangelists, when they do evangelistic series, they deliberately cover up the church sign and put away the Adventist hymnals. Because we don't need undue prejudice until they come and hear the beautiful message of Bible truth. And in our church, we had a guy who was upset about this because he felt like we were being disingenuous. And there's always that guy. And yet, we had spirit of prophecy quotes to back up what we're doing. Jesus says, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So, and you know, God uses this description, both the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, which is the word peculiar. The word peculiar has two definitions. One is, the first is strange, odd, and unusual. And the second is, particular or special. I'm not sure why, but too often we are coming across to the world by the first definition of strange, odd, and unusual, and not the second definition, which is particular or special. I can assure you that God didn't intend for us to be viewed as strange, odd, or unusual. I mean, you don't have to do an exegesis of the Bible to understand this. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says that God has chosen thee to be a special people. And you're familiar with 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy, and holy nation, and strange, odd, and unusual. No, it's peculiar. God meant you are a special people, a particular people. If you want to get technical, the Hebrew word for special is segula, which is translated as peculiar, special. We are special. Scientific literature shows that Seventh-day Adventists live on average 10 years longer than the rest of the world. Let's celebrate this. When someone asks me about what I eat, and if I get a chance, I like to talk about the Blue Zones. That's something positive. And I just want to add this about the Blue Zone. As I was preparing a message about the Blue Zones, and one of the things I realized and recognized, we always celebrate how Loma Linda is the only Blue Zone here in North America. But what was really neat is, is I was studying Icaria, Greece, and, uh, and um, Nicoya, Costa Rica, and yes, yeah, Sardinia, and Italy, and Okinawa. These places are all on beautiful beaches. You live on a beautiful beach, you're going to live longer. They have negatively charged ions in the air. The air is fresher to breathe. They have extended family. They have community. They have all these wonderful things. You go to Loma Linda? I was there for four years. The air is horrible. All these other places are homogenous. Same groups of people. They, they got a McDonald's there now. They got all these Western influences as well. Traffic everywhere. God has a special blessing on his people. And so there's so many things that we can talk about. Our Bible prophecies, I love our Bible prophecies. Our Bible prophecies are so coherent and co cohesive, they just fit together, which is the reason why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, because everything fits and everything answers my questions. My wife was Presbyterian before she became Adventist, and she goes, wow, all these questions I had. Adventism answers all my questions. So I understand you know, some of these, one of my good friends from, uh, somebody on our Facebook group posted something about diet and meat. And one of my good friends from my rock climbing gym who I invited to be a part of our F-Drive challenge, he commented, 
He goes, are you saying it's immoral to eat meat or it's not biblical to eat meat? And it was too soon before we could delete the comment. So one of my buddies jumped on and had to do some damage control. And then we sent a nice message to the person who posted it, like, hey, look, we're trying to make build connections here. And sometimes when diet becomes such a focus, we haven't even had a chance to connect this with the person. And so you get the point that I'm trying to make. So one of the things I use this word is be relatable. Are you relatable? I love Bill and Ernest, they go bird watching. They connect with other people. You have a shared hobby or something in common. It's so easy to connect with people. I um, received a message from the Granite Bay Young Adult Youth Leader, and he goes, we just met a girl at the park. She wants to learn how to mountain bike. He messaged me. Great, give me your number. Contacted her. We took her rock climbing, we hiked with her, and we took her mountain biking. Now she's regularly coming to the Vespers. And guess what? She's new to town, but guess who all her friends are? They're all Adventists now. Now, I have not connected with her spiritually one-on-one, but one of my friends I invited to take her rock climbing with me, they become good friends, and they go for on hikes, and they're talking about spiritual matters. And so Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and who gives the increase? God gives increase. We have to do this all together. Be relatable. I've been practicing dentistry for 21 years. You know who makes the best dentist? It's not the dentist who has the highest IQ. It's not the dentist who's got the most skills. It's a dentist who can most connect with their patients. They're the ones. And that goes for any, any relationship or any field. I call it being relatable. Paul calls it something else. I love how Paul calls it. What does Paul call it? Be all things to all people. I like the way Ellen White says it. You know what she says? Agree with the people on every point you can consistently do so. Let them see that you love their souls and want to be in harmony with them so far as possible. In a time where division and divisiveness is all the norm, where fear and rage seems to be the dominating emotion, I think this might be good counsel. Being relatable, how did Jesus do this? Well, we saw in the quote, he mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs. Jesus with the woman at the well, he earned her trust by asking for a favor. Um, Years ago, when I first got into triathlons, I was an avid mountain biker, so I knew cycling would be very easy to learn. Running, you don't need any brains to learn how to run. But swimming, I grew up swimming, but I didn't know how to swim properly. So I was like, and I discovered very quickly, if you don't know how to swim properly, you're a rowboat, and you want to be a, you want to be a yacht when you're swimming. So I was like, I need a swim coach, and then I was at a bike shop, and I was talking to this guy, and he told me he was a collegiate swimmer and all this stuff, and I'm like, I called him. I go, hey, you want to teach me to swim? I'll pay you to teach me to swim. So he goes, yeah. So we would meet at the pool, and he was great. He's teaching, me to, he's teaching me to swim. He's not even charging me. In fact, I just gave him money, because I'm like, you're coming out almost weekly and sometimes every other week, depending on our schedule, teaching me to swim. And he was amazing. We showed up at the pool one time, and he shows up with flippers. He's out of shape now, okay? This guy's a few younger, years younger than me, but he's kind of out of shape. And he brought the flippers, so I thought what he was going to do is he's going to Put the flippers on, because I'm in better shape than he is, and I'm going to chase him in the pool. He goes, you put the flippers on. I was like, what? I could hardly keep up with him with the flippers on. That's how amazing he was. And so George and I became friends. He'd been over to our house. Uh, and I want, he needs Jesus in his life. He talks like a sailor. He loves to drink his beer, tell me his old stories when he's to triathlons. How do I bring up Jesus? Six months went by, and one day we meet at the gym. He goes, I need to talk to you. And he goes, I could just tell things were different. And we go, let's talk. We go into a room, and he goes, I just found out I have stomach cancer. I've got six months to live. 
right then, I shared with him my testimony and why I need Jesus. I said, you want to study the Bible with me? So he came over to the house. We studied the Bible together. During that period, two of my favorite testimonies, the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard, one of them was Christian Bernal, happened to be just coming through town. So I was able to bring him to go hear this one speaker. And then when Christian Bernal came through, he came with his girlfriend. And I was like, God, you're so amazing. You put me right in his path. And it's just at the right time, it was timing. Had I brought up Jesus before? Now, what really hurt, was sad for me, is that through this all, I wish I could tell you that he accepted Jesus in his heart. He wanted so badly to live. And as far as I know, he didn't accept Jesus. And I never know. We never know until we get to heaven. And I was like, why? I didn't understand. But things that I've realized, hence this whole situation, is that God loved George so much that God put someone right there in his path to give him Bible truth. George can never go to heaven or be there and say, you never gave me an opportunity. George will never have that. And I realized, you know what? Despite the results, ours is, we're just to be honor guard for God. Ours is to be a light and leave the circumstances and whatever happens to the Lord. Now, um, I want to tell you about a recent story. Um, just last year, we were hiking up in Mount Rainier. We're just hiking to the base camp. I've been there many times, but when a mountain snows, when there's snow on the mountain, you can't recognize everything, anything at all. And I'm going with two of my buddies, and there's a woman just hiking by herself. And when you're hiking, I kind of notice the people. I'm a people watcher, so I notice people who are around me. And here's a woman hiking by herself. And as we started going off trail, we are going up some sta- crazy steep stuff that we should not be on without ice axes. We just have our poles. And she doesn't know where she's going, so she just starts following us. So we start talking with her. And I was impressed with her, how she was in such good shape. And find out her name's Sylvie, and she's a 55-year-old French woman who lives in Tacoma by herself. She's out hiking. So we had fun. We became friends. And once we got up to there, we made, met other people, and we became friends in this huge group. We all hiked down together. And I was so impressed with her. And I said, like, hey, we're going to climb Mount Hood in a couple weeks. Do you want to go with us? She climbed Mount Hood with us. Never spoke with her anything about spiritual things. But she knows I'm a Christian. And then I said, you want to climb Mount Rainier? She goes, yeah. She's making friends now. She didn't have any friends, hardly, probably except for her coworkers. I could not climb. I had to, uh, I had to uh, cancel that trip for myself because we were actually moving down here that weekend. But she went with my friends and had a wonderful time. And I was like, I don't know when I'll ever see Sylvie again. About a month later, she messages me and she goes, she was a manager of a retirement home. She goes, I need a Christian broadcast for my retirement home. Could you connect me with a Christian broadcast? So all I'm thinking is, praise the Lord, right? She just knows I'm a Christian. She's reaching out to me. Praise the Lord. That's it. Fast forward to this year, a friend of mine who had met Sylvie through my relationship with Sylvie, my friendship with her, she goes, pray for Sylvie. I can't tell you what's going on, but pray for her. She needs prayers. So right there, that was a cue for me. Because with friendship evangelism, you've got to be intentional and you have to be deliberate. So I sent her a message. And I said, Sylvie, we'd love to have you join us next time we go climbing outdoors. It would be great to see you and hike like old times. How are you doing? I hope all is going well for you. I was hoping she would bite. She could be like, it's going well. Good to hear from you. She responded, hi, Calvin, thank you. Just lost my job, so kind of free, free now. She messaged me, that void, the void that work fills opens a deeper void or a lack of purpose. This is universal. People who don't have Jesus in their lives have voids in their lives. And they are superficially trying to fill this, whether it's with their work or with their sports or with their drinking, whatever it is. Everyone is trying to fill that void. And here, I'm just waiting for that right time with these people when I can come and share what fills that void in my life. I messaged her. I said, hey, let's go out to dinner tonight. So we met. 
And she shares words like this, void, lack of purpose, emptiness, suicidal ideations. We had a two-hour-long conversation. I gave her a book. And I said, hey, you know what? We're going on a mission trip next month. You want to go with us? She goes, I'll come with you. So just this last, um, about two week, a week and a half ago, two weeks, she was out there at Daystar Academy on a mission trip with us. So I shared this message with the group while my friends took her hiking. Because I wanted to tell everyone, you guys, love on her. Care for her. But don't make her your project. What I don't need is 30 people trying to, like, she's my project. I just want us to just love her and have a great experience. And one of my friends texted me after I, because I had left early. We want to give you an update. Lance had a great controversy in his car, and Sylvie happened to see it, and we talked. When I met with her, I had a great controversy, but I decided not to give her the great controversy. I decided to give her something else and hold off. And here, she totally opened up. Lance gave her the great controversy, and she said she's looking forward to reading it. And so just planting seeds, but building relationships. Now, as we come to an end, here is the silver lining. You know my friend that I came, I brought her, and all of a sudden it became a banter about eating meat and not eating meat? She comes to another one of our events, and then she sends me this message. Calvin, I want to thank you in person, but seldom see you with your daughters at the gym. I'd like to attend your church service. People are good-hearted individuals, many of whom are dear and now close friends for acquaintances. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to join everyone in Zion National Park. We serve a God who can take our faux pas, our foibles, our oddities, our mistakes, and he can turn them into blessings. I was giving a talk similar to this, and I mentioned how it's so easy to give Bible studies to a Baptist. You don't need to know a lot to give a Bible study. You only need to know just a little bit more. They say, you know what's the difference between a beginner snowboarder and a snowboard instructor? You know what's the difference? Just four days. That's all it is. Do you know how to snowboard? You're a snowboard instructor. Bible study, all you need, you know how much truth we know? Let's just take a Baptist, for example. Besides the gospel and besides baptism by immersion, think of all the things that they believe that are not true. State of death, secret rapture, eternal torment. And I had mentioned this. Right after the message, a young man comes up to me. He goes, my father's Baptist and my mom's charismatic. And I'm like, uh-oh. I didn't know there was a, you know, someone with Baptist leanings in the audience or Baptist influence. And so I started, he goes, I want to know what you meant. So I actually goes, well, let me show you. And so I started showing him stuff for the Bible. And when I was done, I said, do you want to study the Bible together? And he goes, yeah. And now we've been studying the Bible. And he is hooked on Bible prophecy. So here, something that could have been something that just burned bridges, God can turn it around and take our mistakes and turn it into something beautiful. So, I told you about that poll I had put on Facebook on Rejoicing in Hope. The good news is that almost everyone who had heard of Adventists before becoming an Adventist and their impressions were that we were strange, odd, and unusual or occult, guess what? They had all become Adventists. God can cover for our mistakes. We are told the secret of success is the union of divine power with human effort. I love that. It didn't say human brilliance, human IQ, human eloquence, human elocution. It's just human effort. There's one miracle in the Bible that is repeated in all four of the Gospels. Anyone know what miracle that is? It's the only miracle. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says, give them something to eat. Spiritually speaking, what does that mean? Give them something to eat. Food. What does food represent in the Bible? Spiritual food, right? God's word. Give them something to eat. And the response was, we have but five loaves and two fishes. What they're saying is we have nothing to share. We say that all the time. But I don't know the Bible. We don't have the resources to do this. I don't have the time. I don't have anything to give. And Jesus says, give it to me. Give me what you got. And he prays and he blesses it. 
And this story underscores an important spiritual lesson. You and I, ours is to come to Jesus every morning and say, Jesus, come to him for a handout. And Jesus will give you food to share. And what you do is you take that food and you share it. And you come back and he'll give you more. It never runs out. And you share it. I love how Ellen White puts it in Desire of Ages. She says, you must receive to impart. You must impart to receive. Only as you impart, are imparting, can you continue to receive. If you want your Christian experience to a blissful one, a vibrant one, I want to encourage you, don't miss out on winning souls to Jesus. One other thing I just want to add before I close is, one of the things I run to with this ministry a lot is that Adventist people, it's easy for us, we just meet others, and we just assume everybody's Adventist, but that's not the case. We see this on Facebook all the time. I'll just scroll to someone's main page, and they post and comment as if all their friends are Adventists. First of all, if all your friends are Adventists, we got a problem. Because you have coworkers and relatives and neighbors who are not Adventists, and they're on your feed. They watch what, what's being said. Unless you have your settings set to private, the world is watching what we're putting on there. And if you look at it, and you're talking about just church laundry and issues of the church, they're reading this. And this doesn't make us winsome. And so it's just real simple. When I post something, I think twice about what I'm posting. And it, it, the problem is not that our Adventist people are posting vulgar stuff. That's not it. It's just stuff that just makes us look weird. And so it's just this simple. When you post something, if my neighbor who's atheist is reading this, is that going to build connection? Or maybe make us look like weirdos or burn bridges? Or if my gay coworker is reading this, will this help me to have a greater influence upon them? Anyways, um, you know, it's something that I'm really passionate about, friendship evangelism. And I think it's, it's just such an easy way to connect with people. And the best way I like to describe friendship evangelism is all you're doing is just making friends for eternity. You're making friends, but you plan on spending forever with these friends. So thank you. May God bless each and every one of you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.